Billions of people just living out their lives, oblivious. They taught you good, made you believe their world. Power is tearing human minds apart and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. Don't fight it, son. Confess quickly. If you hold out too long, you could jeopardize your credit rating. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Paradigm, I'm your host Paul Brackell. It's great to be back again this week with another guest and I've got a fascinating episode for you again. I'm really enjoying doing this podcast and it's such a privilege to be able to speak to people from all around the world on various topics and they're so interesting to speak to, most of these people who have done massive amounts of research but sometimes when you're in these rabbit holes it can become slightly depressing because you can see things that are coming down the pipeline and like I did in my episode the perfect storm I can see that there's going to be a cyber attack there's going to be a banking crash because these psychopaths that are in control and I don't mean that in just a derogatory term they are psychopaths these these satanists these luciferian elite they have plans that they're going to enact and they are going to be enacted And there's going to come a time when it leads up to the mark of the beast, which is talked about in Revelation chapter 13. And I've been thinking about that just over the last few weeks and what that will actually look like. And and I think as Christians, we might gloss over this sometimes when it tells us that those that don't receive this mark will not be able to buy or sell anything. And I've been contemplating what that actually looks like and sometimes we just think about, you know, we can't buy things, but we can't even sell things. That means we can't even sell things to make any anything to be able to buy food or whatever. And I just wonder how many of us are actually prepared for what's coming. Now, I'm not trying to frighten anyone. I just want people to be aware of it because we're not to live in fear. The Bible repeatedly tells us to fear not. And before I get into this episode, and I just wanted to sort of add a little bit of encouragement because it can get pretty dark down these rabbit holes, especially when we start considering that there's a a global network of satanic paedophiles trafficking children around the world, that these psychopaths want to depopulate the world. But I just want to read a couple of verses out of Revelation that actually show us the the future of these powers that are behind all this insanity, all this inversion of God's creation. And that's Revelation chapter 19, first of all, verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrote miracles before him with which he had deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that had worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And secondly, from Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, 
and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's the future of the false prophet. That's the future of the beast, of the Antichrist. And that's the future of the devil. So when we come a little downcast and we see these things coming down the pipe, these, these elites ever closing in the net around us to control us, encourage ourselves with that if you're a Christian person, that the Lord is going to return and that the future of the false prophet and the beast and the devil is the lake of fire. That is written in black and white and it's not going to change. So today, guys, I've got with me a fascinating guest and I've got with me a gentleman by the name of Fergus O'Connor Greenwood. And Fergus has wrote a book called 180 Degrees, Unlearn the Lies That You Have Been Taught to Believe. Now, what I would say about the book is, it's a it's a large book. It's close to 800 pages is this book, but it's, it's easy to read. Fergus has made it easy to read. And, and he's even added QR codes, which you can scan with your phone, and it takes you to different links of videos that are relevant to the topics he's talking about. But what I would say as a disclaimer, and I'm saying this as a Christian person, is that um, there is a chapter regarding sort of higher consciousness and um, spiritual matters, which Fergus isn't a Christian man, and I, I don't agree with some of the things in there. But that's not to take away from the fact that Fergus has done a lot of research. It's a fascinating book. It's well worth a read, and this will be an interesting episode. He's a very knowledgeable guy. And I just hope you enjoy the episode. And if you're enjoying this podcast, would you do me, first of all, the favour of liking the podcast by clicking that five stars and leaving me the review? I've noticed that the amount of people that follow me is nowhere near the amount that have left the review. So if you could please just leave me a review, it helps with the algorithms and helps this podcast become more visible to those people who are searching for something to listen to and secondly if you could help financially that'd be great you can either just do a single one-off donation at buymeacoffee.com slash beyond the p5 or you can become a member where it's uh, three pounds a month and you get a shout out on air you acquire voting rights to vote on what topics and you will keep on uh, this podcast as there are costs incurred. I am going to sort of update that tier as well and add another feature. Um, thinking about adding a sort of Discord uh, channel to it where members can chat about different things. But I'll keep you up to date with that, guys. And I have got ideas to do some live streams in the future. So in order to gauge interest in that, there's going to be a question in the description for this episode about who would be interested in these live streams. But that's enough of that. And without further ado, I'm going to go and bring Fergus onto the show. You will enjoy this episode, I'm sure. It's a fascinating episode. So just sit back and enjoy the show. Fergus O'Connor Greenwood, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thanks very much for the invite, Paul. Nice to be here. Yeah, so you're the author of the book 180 Degrees, Unlearn the Lies You Have Been Taught to Believe. But just for my audience who possibly haven't read the book and may not have heard of you, can you tell us a little bit about your background and then what led you to write the actual book? Sure, yeah. 
So originally I did a degree in mathematics. Uh, later on, I did a master's from a Dutch business school, uh, TS. I worked in the corporate world for around 16 years, uh, then jumped out of that uh, to do uh, SME business turnarounds, and then eventually got around to writing the book. So, um, yeah, I probably took about 15,000 hours over it, so maybe I'm the world's slowest writer. Uh, why did I write the book? Research. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I could see that we've been lied to not just about the small things, but the big things, and not just about some things, but pretty much everything. So um, what I was trying to do with 180 is make something very readable, both for someone who'd never come across the information before and also veterans of the space. And uh, from the feedback I've received, I think... I've managed that for at least for some people. But um, I think where uh, it works so well from what I've heard back from people is that it manages to join the dots across a whole range of silos. So the book covers everything from false flag through the finance system, how that links through the Bolshevik revolution into all the Black Lives Matter and all the woke stuff uh, there. Then we go into things like religion. Um, then in, there's a darker chapter on all the satanic ritual abuse and paedophilia and why that's such a thing in terms of blackmailing politicians, that type of thing. We also do the chapter on higher states of consciousness, um, people's psychic ability, a uh, whole chapter on the medical profession and, of course, a chapter on covid I'd finished the book, I thought, at the end of 2019. And, of course, that uh, shambles came along. So I thought, well, we've got to put one in about that. I'm so pleased I did. And, yeah, also it contains in Chapter 13 is all about solutions and then the more way out stuff. But linking back to other stuff in the book is last chapter called Taboo and Speculation. No, you can see that you've put a lot of research in. I mean, just for those people who have not seen the book, it's close to 800 pages. But like you said, it, it is a readable book. I mean, because obviously some of them, you've got quite a few good quotes in there and some, you know, diagrams of stuff. And, and, and one of the interesting things I found with your book, you include QR codes, which give you links to uh, like videos and things. I thought that was, a. have not seen that in a book before. No, it was a, just a thought-passing thought, I think. Well, mm. hang on, I can put, which I have, all the references at the end of each chapter, so it's close to the information as you're reading it. But for most people, they're not going to try and type in some massive URL and go and see it. So where it's particularly like a video, and I think it's a key piece of evidence, then I thought the QR code would be nice just to be able to uh, quickly pull your phone out and look up the information. The danger with it, of course, is uh, in the world we currently live in and the heavy censorship being applied that some of those links will get broken, but maybe that tells a message in itself as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've just never seen it before. And it's, it is a, it's, it's a good part of the book that, um, so Obviously, we're talking about, you know, you mentioned about uh, the lies. Um, now, in terms of the lie, and you talk about the big lie and things like that, 
Yeah. How ubiquitous are these lies? And do you believe we can trust anything at all the mainstream tell us? Uh, in a word, no. <laughs> uh, I've come to the conclusion that pretty much everything on the mainstream media, um, you should take with a giant uh, pinch of salt. Now, there is a technique where they try to mix truth with lies in order to give more credibility to the lie. But I think there's a much there's certain other techniques in play which almost usurp that. And I don't know why they've gone to such an extreme, but the best one we can pull out is um, the case of inversion. So everything is basically on its head, which is why I called the book 180 degrees, because to get back to the truth, we need to invert their inversions. So, for example, uh, look at the last four years, what was repeated into us, it's safe and effective. Well, if you know that they deal with inversion, you can just flip that yourself to find out the truth. So instead of safe and effective, of course, it was dangerous and useless. So um, you've therefore, so mitigation is easy as long as you know what the tactics are. And one of the big overriding ones is something called the craft, uh, which is basically wrapping everything up in benevolence uh, i.e. how to dress up evil to make it look good. Because obviously if it sounds horrendous, people aren't going to go along with it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. how can you put a mask on whatever it is you're trying to achieve in order to fool people to go along with it, i.e. weaponize uh, morality against them? I mean, we've just had a classic example, I think, this week with Elon Musk. So uh, I'm not going to say... Well, he's a good guy, bad guy, uh, but I'm just noticing, for example, if you take uh, the craft example, the first thing he said, because uh, he want, obviously wants to put a brain chip into people, so uh, they're obviously not going to say, well, this is to control the human mind and, you know, save us a fortune on bombarding you with propaganda, we're just going to put the thoughts directly into your head. For anyone who thinks that isn't possible, there is something called voice to skull technology, which is about 40 years old. So how they do it, of course, is um, they take baby steps. So they're going to take the group where no one could really argue that it isn't a good idea to put a brain chip into them. And of course, he said this could great give great benefits to paraplegics. Mm. And of course it can. But that isn't where this whole agenda go is going. The agenda is uh, a transhumanist one. And what does that mean? They're basically trying to move you from organic to synthetic. And I think that's just another example of that type of thing. Mm. Yeah, I've discussed the transhuman agenda uh, with a previous guest and one of the things that I've observed is that it's clear that the transgender movement is a stepping stone to that. Would you agree with that? Uh, I would. I think it's first and foremost divide and conquer uh, because they run out of track in terms of just male and female. Um, but with the divide and we'll come back to the transgender thing slightly, but let me just stand the divide and conquer for a second because it's an important point. What I recognised was 
Um, the media will always give you a false, what I call slicing of the cake. So we're always presented with a horizontal slicing. So it's gay versus straight. It's Christian versus Muslim. It's old versus young. It's rich versus poor. None of that is the correct way to slice the cake in order to find out where the problem is. What you need to do is slice that case vertically, not horizontally. So if you take something like wealth, for example, are rich people the problem? Well, not per se, no. The problem is sociopaths and psychopaths. They're in both the upper and lower tier. And if you separate that out vertically, that is more where your problem is. Now, to come back to uh, is transgender a push towards transhumanism? Yes, I would say that it's an and, not an or situation. And they do this quite a lot as well. If you can kill three birds with one stone, why not? But I think we've, um, I mean, for those who really want their interest in ancient history, uh, I think we've got a bit of an Atlantis redux going on here because we've been here before, uh, supposedly, with automatons. Uh, for anyone who wants to look into all that, I'd recommend the work of Edgar Casey. Um, but yeah, I think they're going to try and replace the female womb with a synthetic one, i.e. get rid of women completely. Uh, that may sound a bit out there from where we are now, but uh, that's the sort of uh, mental thinking these idiots have, you know. Oh, definitely. I mean, we often you know, in these circles, use the words psychopaths and, and sociopaths. And uh, just so my audience understand, we're not using this like just in a, a name-calling sort of fashion. These people are actual psychopaths. I mean, that's just a fact, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're doing things that the average person wouldn't dream of doing. Who You know, they, they don't care whether they kill thousands or millions of people to get what they want. Correct. So um, if anyone's interested, I recommend a book called Political Ponerology, which I reference. And Ponerology is the study of evil. And it was written by some Polish guys under communism. And it took them three times to get this out. Twice I had to trash the manuscript because someone came round to, um, uh, you know, from the authorities came round to try and uh, suspected uh, it was there and try and grab it. So they twice had to throw it on the fire and start again. Can you imagine doing that with an 800-page book? I'd literally mm. be in tears, I think, at that point. <laughs> anyway, they did manage to get it out. And one of the key observations they came out with is they thought there was uh, some kind of good in everyone. And he said, we learned to uh, utter cost that wasn't true. But one of the interesting things was once they'd understood that they were dealing with a bunch of psychopaths, it actually made life easier. So I think there's this, um, you know, there's two forms of anxiety. There's the, <clears throat> I think Matthias Desmet referenced this one when he said there's this floating anxiety where you're anxious, but you can't really nail down what the exact problem is. When you can face the truth and nail it down, it seems like as humans we're much better 
at then dealing with that than the floating variety. One of the things that I was interested in when I was reading your book was how you highlight like the tactics that are used. And one of them's in, obviously it's, it's in the first chapter and you talk about how vocabulary has been hijacked. And in particular, the phrase conspiracy theorist. Now, how has that been sort of weaponized? Because I know it's basically a conversation killer, but could you elaborate on how it's been hijacked, how that, that phrase has been weaponized like against us who are conspiracy theorists, but by that I mean critical thinkers? Yeah, so that's one of the things I use is CT is a conspiracy theorist if you uh, belong to the deep state and want to shut everyone up and critical thinker if you're just a normal person trying to do some research. So, um, yeah, there's uh, there was a CIA uh, paper uh, written. Uh, what was the number? I should have it here. Uh, dispatch 1035960. And this was basically uh, a document the CIA came out with after the JFK assassination, uh, to try and counter any material coming out of the public questioning what uh, the state was up to. So within that, for example, it recommended you ignore theorist claims until discussion about them is already, unless discussion about them is already too active. Accuse theorists of being infatuated with their own theories. Accuse theorists of being politically motivated. Uh, of interest in financial gain out of it, uh, have people friendly to the CIA attack any of claims, claim eyewitness testimony as unreliable, say it's old news, there's no significant new evidence has emerged, and say it's irresponsible to speculate, and that it would be impossible to keep such a big conspiracy quiet. So... Once you know that that's a tactic and uh, any form of uh, name calling is something similar. I mean, it's very juvenile on one level because it, you can sort of go back to kindergarten and it's like someone called you a nasty name. Shouldn't really have any effect at all. But unfortunately for humanity, it's actually worked quite well for them. The good news is, because pretty much every conspiracy theory has come true, I think the whole power of that has totally and utterly waned. And I personally would love them to keep using it because they're doing, them, they're doing their own strategy in. Yeah. Oh, if people say to me, oh, you're just a conspiracy theorist, I'm like, yeah. That's right, because I think about things. We're just taking the phrase back. I think we need to do that. Yeah, I prior, obviously, to CIA getting hold of it and weaponizing it. I mean, if you weren't a conspiracy theorist, it, it meant that you wasn't a thinking person. Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, it's probably. That, I mean, that's what area, I've read, but... but whether that's accurate, I don't know. But that's sort of. Before before it was weaponized, that was sort of seen as that you, you should be a conspiracy theorist. Because, I mean, I even talked about it in regards to the Bible and, and one I can't remember which episode I talked to it about, but how the actual word itself is in the Bible and that conspiracies, they're just they're just Well, facts. the word conspiracy theories in the Bible? No, the actual word conspiracy. Oh, right, conspi yeah, yeah, yeah. Conspiracy and, the, and conspired. Because, you know, well, for example, Judas conspired 
with, to to uh, betray Christ. That, that, yeah, pretty much everything's yeah. a conspiracy. So it yeah. it's amazing how much power it has had over the years. But as I said already, I think uh, most of that power is now out the window uh, because you can't keep using something and retain its credibility if it turns out that every time you're wrong. And I think that's where we are, which is great, because it also is then waking more people up, I think. Mm. So in another chapter of your book entitled Revelations, you deal with another powerful sort of labelling tactic, namely the use of the label anti-Semite. And I've had this levelled at me on Twitter can you can you expound this tactic because it is like a, a a powerful tactic to silence and discredit people? Yeah, sure. So, um, I think one of the key things I call and the label of anti-Semitism a double bear trap because I think it's there to catch out uh, both Jews and non-Jews alike but just from different angles. So, for example, uh, I think <clears throat> there's three types of anti-Semitism out there. Uh, one is actual anti-Semitism. Um, we have manufactured anti-Semitism, and we have anti-Semitism as a labelling tactic, which is the one you're bringing up. What I say with the actual anti-Semitism, the first one is self-evident. It's a form of bigotry. And whenever countered, it should be called out and highlighted with zero tolerance. I'm sure you can agree with that. Absolutely. Uh, but what about the second ones? Well, I would say the same applies. We need to call uh, it out if someone's using it inappropriately. So, for example, with the manufactured type, uh, there was a case of a dual American Israeli citizen called uh, Michael Ron David Kadar. And he was charged with making 2,000 bomb threats against mostly Jewish community centres, centers, i.e. it wasn't anti-Semitism, but simply blackmail dressed up as anti-Semitism. But the one you've highlighted, the third one, is the labelling tactic. And, yeah, you simply try and label someone because of something you don't like. And uh, there's a good recommendation from, a recommendation from Caitlin Johnson on this who said, this means not ignoring your smearers nor capitulating to their demands, but engaging their smears loudly and publicly in a way that fully exposes what they're attempting to do. So um, I think there's three quotes I use uh, in that chapter at the end uh, under the breaking the spell. And um, so we have one from, uh, what was it, I think, Victor Ostrovsky, who was a Mossad agent. So here's what he said, uh, speaking uh, at a presentation in 1995. He said, when I was in Mossad, we had a guy, and we had a guy who gave us problems in the US, and he was speaking out saying, Israel is bombing Lebanon with cluster bombs. We'd say, hey, who is that guy? Pete McCacke. We used to call him, yeah, which means Pete the Cockroach, because he makes a lot of noise and you can't get rid of him. So what you do is get to, in touch with the guys at Benabrith to label him. The campaign starts, and before you know, the guy is labelled as an anti-Semite. 
And he is an anti-Semite because that is what we say he is, and that's one stink you cannot wash. Now, it shames me as a Jew to tell you that, but that is, that's the fact, and it's wrong. But really, the one, if you only ever want to quote um, one person, I would say Shulamit Aloni, who was a former Israeli cabinet member, winner of the 2000 Israel Prize, and she was interviewed by Amy Goodman in August 2002. She said the following. So former Israeli cabinet minister, this is from. When someone from Europe is criticizing Israel, then we bring up the Holocaust. And when in the US people are criticizing Israel, they are anti-Semitic. The suffering of the Jewish people is used to justify everything we do. Anti-Semitic, well, it's a trick. We always use it. Wow. And yeah. the flip side of this is that uh, this also gets applied to Jewish people as well, which is almost ridiculous when you think about it. But, I mean, there was, um, I think, an article with Dennis Bernstein and John Pilger. He points out if you're of Jewish heritage and criticise Israel, you're also labelled. He said, personally, as a Jewish American and the grandson of a revered rabbi, I have been roundly denounced by pro-Israeli representatives and their Zionist lobbyists in the US. I have stopped counting the number of vicious personal attacks that have labelled me a self-hating Jewish anti-Semite. So as Henry Macau says, they create anti-Semitism to keep ordinary Jews in line as well mm. so that's why i call it the double bear trap because it's controlling both sides and there was a guy who was uh brought up uh jewish brought up in israel who come out and said from a kid from the very early age it is absolutely programmed into you that um the gentiles are out to kill you and want to genocide you and you must always fight them and be on the defence. He went on to say, at the top, there is somebody lying. Whether it's mm. the rabbi or whoever taught the rabbi, but for the average Jewish layperson, it's not as if they are conscious of the dishonesty when it comes to topics like that. They really do feel like victims. So I think it's important to understand that yeah, there's both sides to this, and the pe the puppet masters at the top are playing both sides. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I mentioned it had been used against me on Twitter, and the reason the reason for that is there was a, it was when um, Hamas allegedly attacked Israel in October, and yeah, there was a lot of uh, you know Zionists putting things on Twitter. And I simply made the point that, because they were calling people anti-Semitic and all this, but my point that I made was, you can only be anti-Semitic to someone who's a Semite, and someone who's a Semite must descend from Noah's son Shem. Therefore, if you're not descended from Shem, you're not a Semite. And I said that there's probably more Palestinians descended from Shem than there is Israelis. The majority of them are probably just Europeans. And there would have been... Um, what would have been the Kazarian Empire. Well, they, they didn't like it, so I was anti-Semitic for saying that. 
Yeah, but, but that, that is how the tactic works. It doesn't matter yeah. whether it's you're making a valid point. Mm. Uh, they just sling the mud, knowing mm. that uh, some of it will generally stick. Or again, yeah. it has in the past. Uh, I think um, I think Cliff High in his webbot data said um, he, you know, he picks up uh, phrases uh, that are going to come. Uh, out maybe coming out in the future and he talked about the Israeli mistake and I do wonder uh, because of the fact that I mean even former IDF members came forward to say look if even a cockroach approached that wall there'd be 10 jeeps there yet we're somehow meant to believe that six or seven hours goes past and no one turned up I mean, it's just not credible as an explanation. So uh, it looks for all, um, you know, it looked very much like it was a false flag. And when you go, you don't even have to ask any Palestinians or Hamas. You can go back and ask uh, former um, Israelis. And they said, yeah, we created Hamas and we sponsored them. So it's your classic, you know, and of course they're now claiming, oh, it was just blowback, you know, uh, things got out of hand. But my view is if you help create them and you've sponsored them, it's highly likely you control them. And the one giveaway, the bigger giveaway on all that was, I don't know if you saw the, um, I think the cover of the two, uh, Christmas edition 2012, I think, or 13 of The Economist. No, so how did uh, Hamas uh, attack Israel on hang gliders, yeah? So go back to The Economist magazine of 2012, and there's a picture called Welcome to Hell. And if you look at the top of that, it's Benjamin Netanyahu and Hamas, both on hang gliders fighting each other. Oh. So, you know, what are the chances, unless that is perhaps what you planned in the future anyway? So I'm with you. It looks absolutely like a false flag. And it's why, not because of that, because obviously the, the book came out uh, end of 2020, beginning 21. But I think this whole false flag thing uh, is so important for people to understand so we start off with a couple of gentler sort of hybrid examples like Lusitania and Pearl Harbor, move into 9-11, and then really go through dissecting the etymology and everything of uh, a false flag and how to recognize it. And then I give three examples where the reader can decide for themselves with some very limited information whether that fits the false flag uh, category or not. Because at some point, I mean, pretty much it seems every war has been started under false pretenses. And I think as more of us wake up to that fact, you know, we just need to call it out. Definitely. And that, that leads nicely, really, to my next question, because obviously, you know, like you said, that probably most wars have been started... Basically, it's basically a lie, a false flag, isn't it? I mean, like the Gulf of Tonkin was just a complete lie. Nothing happened at all. And yeah. and in the book, you talk about, in your second chapter, you talk about the big lie. 
could you talk us through like the process that gets people to believe in this big lie? Yeah. So um, the thing about a small lie is sometimes you might uh, pick up on the facts of, uh, through a body tick or a you know voice tonality that people are lying. Um, but with the big lie, one of the huge psychological problems is the big lie is more credible by being incredible. I, it's so hard for normal people to wrap their heads around the fact that uh, someone would consider doing such a horrendous thing that um, they can't wrap their heads around it. So there's two quotes in there, uh, one from J. Edgar Hoover, first director of the FBI, who said, the individual is handicapped by coming face to face with a conspiracy so monstrous he cannot believe it exists. And then uh, Herbert Marshall McLuhan, who was a Canadian professor and communication theory specialist, said, only the small secrets need to be protected. The big ones are kept secret by public incredulity. So with the big lie, generally it comes from someone in a position of authority. Uh, usually there's a heavy amount of repetition involved in keep pushing that narrative and it will seem to a normal person that, um, yeah, no one would ever consider doing that and therefore can't ever wrap their heads around it. As you were talking there, I'm just thinking about like some of the things that are so big that people won't believe. And it's like if you if you was to start telling people, listen, this world's run by a group of satanic paedophiles and there's a massive paedophile ring and they're probably mm -hmm. sacrificing children and all this type of stuff. <laughs> Most people are not accepting that. Yeah, and you know why? Because this well, comes down to uh, one of the key... <clears throat> With 9-11 and all this stuff, I quickly realised the truth movement doesn't have an evidence problem. It has a communication problem. Mm. And it's things like, for example, with 9-11, I noticed everyone was getting bogged down in how it was done. And so I decided to take an approach, okay, I need to look at this from a different angle. So one of the things I've tried to do is prove the lie not prove the truth mm. because the lie is a much lower hurdle to get over. You know, what didn't happen is easier to prove than what did. So I think it's a much lower bar, but yeah. when it comes to, um, yeah, the bit that everyone seems to have missed is everyone goes after the evidence. And actually what we need to focus on more is how to communicate the truth. And one of the things you brought up there is 
uh, yeah, one of probably about 10 solutions I've got on this on how to deal with it. And that is people slide from A to Z, they don't jump from A to Z. So if the first thing you should do is shut up, <laughs> listen and work out who you're talking to, what their values are, and where they are on the A to Z scale. So, for example, you know, if they currently believe everything the government's telling them, they're at A. If you're going to start harping on about paedophiles and satanic ritual abuse, which is more down the Z end of the spectrum, they're going to look at you like you've got three heads, which I'm guessing is some of the reactions you've had. Look, it's no criticism because we've all done it. I stick my hand up first whenever I'm talking. There's a, anyone done this? And I, yeah, guilty as charged. <laughs> Why? Because it's sort of natural that we've got important information we need to get over. And I need to tell you, what do you mean you're not listening? So that is what I call the communication trap. We all tend to fall into. Learn the truth. Get angry at being lied to, because this also inflames the truth tellers need to be right. Communicate that truth while still being annoyed at being duped in an unconsidered way. Trigger the backfire effect, i.e. the rejection of the message in others. Become frustrated at people not seeing the truth. Try again with even more evidence and conviction and fail bigger. That's mm. the process and it doesn't work. So there are techniques you can do, uh, things like be kind first, be right later. And you win by not winning. If I can give one recommendation at all, it's this one. If your aim is to convince the other person of your position, you've already lost before you've opened your mouth. Because you've got the wrong objective. Mm. A good objective or the correct one might be to get them to ask you a question. What you're trying to do is seed, not succeed. And seeding an idea is a bit like, putting um, a pip of an apple in your garden on Wednesday and waking up next morning and expecting to see a fully grown tree. It's not going to happen. Why? Because that other person needs absorption and processing time. Yeah. And those are the factors we naturally just don't think about. But when you understand they work and they do work, then you just need to bury your own ego and go through that process and generally, um, yeah, keep the conversation going, let them win. I mean, I had a great example once of a guy, I think it was talked about 9-11, it was ages ago, you know, because we're 20 years beyond it now. But it's still such a good example because, uh, you know, 9-11 uh, is a great case study because it's, not only shows you how they're carried out, but how they're covered up. But with this guy, I said to him, and I think that's the truth of the matter. And he said, that's your truth, not the truth. My reaction was to shut up because I realized I'd lost him. You know, the finger was out pointing and it's like, okay, he's gone into combat mode. You can either shut up or try and recover them with a sentence like, look, I'm not trying to, um, you know, convince you of anything. I'm just trying to show you a possibility. But on that occasion, I just chose to shut up. So as far as we're both concerned, he'd won the argument. 
What I didn't expect to happen was two months later when I reapproached him and said, look, I'd like you to read my manuscript because I know you generally believe the official story of 9-11. He said, I've changed my mind on that. And I went, oh, okay, what happened in between? What happened in between is because he won the argument and probably felt, oh, I might have been a bit too harsh with my mate on that one. I wonder if there's anything in this. And, of course, part of the secret is letting people discover some of this stuff for themselves. And when they do, that's the – it's sort of the smallest step but intellectually biggest step. If you can create a crack in the dam, then that dam is guaranteed to break. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we can all go in like a bull in a china shop when we learn some some truth that we want to get out. But yeah, mm -hmm. it, it, the wise thing to do is, like you said, is probably shut up and ask questions. Um, what I wanted to do was just because one of your chapters that really interested me is the one I'm on now, um, and you called the chapter "American Gulag," but there's a quote in there. I mean, I've read the quote before in other books, and it's. It's a meme online as well, but you've wrote this at the beginning. It's a quote by, is it Michael Hopf? Those who remain hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. Yeah. I think that's probably where we're at right now. Do you think? Absolutely. I mean, this is the beauty. Unfortunately, a lot of our history has been hidden from us, but um, mm. there's a very good um, study done by John Grubb, and it's talking about empire collapse cycles. And what he was saying that was he studied 10 of the great empires. Okay, he split uh, the Roman in two, but he's not the first one to do that. But he said all these empires, on average, lasts national greatness lasts about to the 250, 240 to 250 year mark. And this time span has varied little over 3,000 years. So it's like, why is it that they all collapse around that time? And he argued this is down to, um, yeah, the different generations coming through. So it takes... On average, if you take a generation, it's 20 years. So it's sort of 12 generations to collapse. And he said, well, you start off with like the age of pioneers, the initial outburst. Because uh, you might have been, there's something else called the liberty tyranny cycle. So in that, you start off with tyranny. For example, if you're there on the circle, you have a revolution, you gain the liberty, uh, then over time, complacency sets in, dependency on the system, and then you're back to tyranny. So if you're looking at how many people are dependent on the system, that would also indicate, unfortunately, where we are on that circle. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, I think Grubb went into, he said, look, um, there, there's different reasons uh, they have, all have different endings, but the underlying reasons why they fail are the same. And generally, the final decay is a result of having too much wealth and power for too long, leading to selfishness, the love of money, and a loss of sense of duty. Any of that sound familiar, Paul? Absolutely. That's where we're at right now. 
And he also said uh, they're marked by defensiveness, pessimism, materialism, frivolity, an influx of foreigners, and a massive expansion of the welfare state and a weakening of religion. So when you view it, you know, from the 40,000 book view or the 3,000 year view, unfortunately, the decay in ethics and moral standards is what sort of does us in. And if, I mean, you could apply that to politicians today, of course, uh, although I'd argue that most of them in high positions are under blackmail. Uh, but there is a saying that you get the government you deserve. And I think uh, if we look at it, I mean, are there any mechanisms in place and are the public actually asking for people of high integrity to be in public office? And do they have a system for weeding out psychopaths? The answer is no and no. So unfortunately, uh, yeah, it looks, I would say, particularly America, but you can apply it to us as well. We look like we're somewhere near the end of that cycle, unfortunately. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I mean, like I was telling you off there, and my listeners know I'm a Christian, and we talk about like how it's we we know it's coming to an end. There's this quickening, but like that, what you were reading the um, in your book where you you know you're talking about you know the love of money and. Uh, this decadence and frivolity influx of foreigners. I mean, it's just it's just describing today. It's just absolutely spot on. Um, yeah, and I just think people need to wake up and realise. And and, I, and I've said this to people. I said, you need to study some history. Do you think that this is going to continue forever? Because empires rise and empires fall. And one of the one of the key things that I've noticed about the end of an empire as well is they become obsessed with gender. Yeah, that's also true. Uh, I don't know if you're at that page because you said you were just. I think I'm before that, that Anna. But that uh, yeah, yeah just a... marginally before. But yeah, I do cover yeah. something uh, the gender agenda, and the first quote under that is from Camille Paglia. And she said, the move towards androgyny occurs in late phases of culture as a civilization is starting to unravel. You find it again and again and again through history. People who live in such times feel that they're being very sophisticated, they're very cosmopolitan, but from the perspective of historical distance, you can see that it's a culture that no longer believes in itself. Mm. But I would argue that... Um, Whilst, yes, we're at the end of empire and that's what happens, uh, you can also flip that round and say, well, if you want to destroy a country, isn't, aren't those the type of things you'd want to push? And I'm very clear to say none of the above is a comment on the LGBT community in terms of, in my view, consenting adults should be left alone to do as they please. But I'm interested throughout the book in where there's uh, a deliberate manipulation from the psychopaths. And this is one area where 100% that's the case. Mm. One of the things that I, um, when I was reading your book that I didn't actually know about this, and it'd be interesting for you to tell the audience what it is, Operation Cyanide. Could you tell us what that is? Yeah, that was referenced the USS Liberty. 
and um yeah the sinking of it i think it was 67 yeah um so i mean it, it it's interesting because um you know there's different takes on this but if you ask the israelis and say oh it was a mistake you know so um there was a united states navy technical vessel um uh, off the coast of um israel and basically on the 8th of june 1967 the ship was attacked with rockets torpedoes and napalm the survivors rats were machine guns and yeah 34 us navy personnel were murdered and over 170 injured um now israel said okay it was a mistake but actually documentation has come out since then uh and a couple of things a the israelis were using unmarked aircraft but there is um you know for anyone who says that this is a mistake there's a transcript been released and it's from the israeli pilot to the idf war room and that goes like this. So the Israeli pilot says, this is an American ship. Do you still want us to attack? IDF war room says, yes, follow orders. Israeli pilot to IDF war room. But sir, it's an American ship. I can see the flag. IDF war room to Israeli pilot. Never mind, hit it. Now, I know someone who's done a whole, uh, you know, five articles on this. And he's there saying, oh, it was, you know, this is well documented. You know, it was a misunderstanding. And it's like, well, clearly it's not if that's the transcript. So, yeah. you you know, whether he's being willfully ignorant or what, I don't know. I'm not particularly interested. But I'm always interested in trying to find the nuggets, and particularly the nuggets from the side, whichever's happening in whatever uh situation you're looking at from the side you wouldn't expect it to hear it from because it's one thing if someone from hezbollah comes out and criticizes israel i mean well you know you're not going to get anyone who isn't probably from then i'm interested in you know if can you get an insider from them or an insider from israel to come out and this is clearly some inside documentation showing what was really going on so, uh, but the hidden thing behind that really, it never really comes out, is uh, what was actually going on in the background as well. Because I believe that uh, the nuclear bombers on the Californian coast were uh, alerted and brought, uh, put on standby and launched one hour before the incident happened. And uh, there was a guy who wrote a book called Operation Cyanide, who details all that. And, uh, yeah, he said he was sure that he the, the klaxon was raised between 2 and 4 in the morning, and yet uh, the attack didn't happen until 5 o'clock Californian time in the morning. Mm. And uh, he thinks they're probably are going to retaliate the sinking of the USS Liberty by dropping nukes on Cairo. So I think one of the important things with the USS Liberty is uh, those American servicemen who managed to get the uh, 
uh, SOS message out to the Sixth Fleet uh, didn't only end up saving their own lives by doing so, but may have ended up sa uh, saving tens of thousands of others. I mean, the more, you know, you research, the more you just, you just, the mind's blown with some of the things that these lunatics do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've heard a theory that the Pentagon, obviously, we know there wasn't a plane on 9-11. Uh, but I, I mean, I don't know whether you've heard this and I, and I don't know if there's any truth in it, but I have. I can't remember where I read it, and I might have heard it on a podcast as well. That it was actually an Israeli missile fired from a submarine. Well, where the how I handle that is, as I mentioned before, I think it's easier to prove what didn't happen than what did, mm. and I yeah. think a lot of the truth movement then start arguing over, no, I'm right, no, I'm right. So, mm. you know, uh, and this is one of the classic cases of, well, what went on. So I tend to focus on the fact that um, whether it was a plane or not a plane, it could not have been the original commercial airliners that hit it. Because we have... Um, the recording both from air traffic control and Richard D. Hall did an amazing uh, analysis of this from uh, he got cameras from 26 different angles around New York City. Mm. And he 3D modeled them and he proved that whatever was coming in to hit the tower was coming in on the same trajectory on each of those cameras, even though they're in different positions. So we modeled it all and he said, well, there was definitely something coming in because um, there's no way you could have mimicked that exact trajectory from 26 different video cameras around the city. So what we do know though, is that um, the maximum operating velocity of a commercial airliner is much higher you're put 38,000 feet than it is below 10,000 feet. And the maximum operating velocity on those planes, even at the high level, was something like 400 miles per hour. And this object was clocked at doing nearly 600. Mm. Now, the other point to take of note is the air density at lower levels is so much greater than up high. One pilot suggested it would need engines six times as more powerful to drive a plane through uh, at that speed at that height. And in any case, most of the aircraft are probably ripped off because of um, 
yeah, all the forces in play. They had pilots try to mimic, uh, this was fully trained uh, airline pilots, even pilots who've flown that plane uh, on a simulator to try and hit the Twin Towers at that speed. None of them could do it. I think after multiple attempts, maybe one out of them finally did. So the point is, we can argue, we can discuss what it was or it wasn't, but it cannot have been the original commercial aircraft because it's physically impossible for them to do so. Now, was it a drone? Was it a missile? Was the missile cloaked? You know, we know there's some very weird impact dynamics on there. Uh, the other thing I'd also point out, one researcher said that um, from where the plane went in, the metal went in and also outwards, which would indicate an explosion from the inside as well. So I would say to people, don't get overly stuck on one narrative. And this is what I've particularly done in terms of the Twin Towers and what brought them down. Because there's huge arguments over, was it standard explosives? Was it nukes? Was it DEWs? It's like, well, it doesn't matter because the towers didn't collapse. The key word is they disintegrated. Mm. And once you understand they disintegrated, it's like, hang on, that can't be down to a plane hitting them. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, my personal view is, and again, how I get around this, or I like to try and get around it with people, is I say, why can it not have been more than one technology or all of them used? You know, it's again ego-driven where I've got to say, I'm right, you're wrong. It's like, well, if you wanted to create mass confusion and arguments, wouldn't you apply multiple things to it? So personally for me on the Twin Towers, um, I favour the nuke theory, um, mainly uh, because of the work of Heinz Pommer and his Ground Zero model. He did a huge amount of mimicking. But if you don't want to go into the technicalities, there is something, uh, and it's a terrible source to use, but for this it's fine. Uh, there's something called the Storax Sedan nuclear test on the Yucca Flat in Nevada on July the 6th, 1962. Go and have a look at the picture that's shown there. It was for a shallow nuclear underground test, and it's got exactly all the hallmark. It looks like the top of the Twin Trade Center when it blew. It's mm. got a vertical, it's got a vertical column coming out, but it's got the finger plumes. I don't know if you remember those, Paul, but there's just single plumes like fingers coming out. It's yeah. got that, and it's got the curtain, the pyroclastic cloud at the bottom that expands to a point and then stops. And you have to say, how were the fires still running month, uh, weeks or months afterwards? For me, um, a nuke would explain that. And... Uh, there were other whistleblowers like Susan Lindauer who uh, were warned in advance saying, uh, don't go to New York that day. They weren't worried about the uh, me getting hit by debris, but the nuclear fallout. 
But of course, there isn't so much. Uh, the radiation monitors didn't throw anything up. But if you look into Palmer's work, he says you can shield these things with water, making them basically come up clean, as it were. And I'd also recommend um, William Tarhill's uh, uh, paper on that, who came out in 2006, we'll think, uh, the nuclear detonation of the World Trade Center. But again, I think the important thing for me is not to argue over the how, it's to prove the lie and then just accept, yeah, maybe if there's phenomenon that isn't covered by X, maybe they used X, Y or X, Y and Z. Yeah. I'm perfectly comfortable with standard explosives being in there, nukes being in there, clean nukes being in there, sorry, and uh, clean micro nukes, sorry, being in there, and also DEWs, one or three. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I... You know, I say it to people, and I, I had a conversation with my wife the other day. Just, it was just about a family matter, but she was saying, you know, it could be this or this, and I said, well, no, it could be A and B, not yeah. A or B. It could be A and B, and I think that's important to note that it doesn't have to be just one. It could be all, you know, combinations. Yeah, I um, say the preposition changes the proposition. Mm. Change the or to an and. Yeah. So it's an election year this year in the UK and obviously in the US as well. So I think it's obviously a great time to talk about elections and vote rigging. And you do talk about that um, in your book. So in your opinion, and based on the research that you've done, do you think that in these nations that the elections are sort of free and fair? And do you think the votes are counted accurately and registered truthfully <laughs> uh no <laughs> uh and then this has been going on for quite some time now i mean there was a huge who are obviously over the 2020 election but mm. if you think that's the only election that's been rigged obviously um i'd say you're probably deluded i mean most americans remember back to the hanging chads i think in uh, 2000, I think, was it? 2002 or 2004. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's... Um, rather than get involved in the later stuff, I went back to 2004 and there was a US House Judiciary Committee and they were interviewing a guy called uh, Clinton Eugene Curtis. And this is what... Uh, the narrative went like between the judge and Curtis. He said, Mr. Curtis, are there computer programs that can be secretly used to fix elections? Curtis, yes. Judge, how do you know that to be the case? Curtis, because in October 2001, I wrote a prototype for Congressman Tom Feeney at the company I worked for in Avedo, Florida, that did just that. Judge, when you say it did just that, it would rig an election. Curtis, it would flip the vote 51 to 49 to whoever you wanted it to go to and whichever race you wanted uh, to win. And the judge asked uh, on to whether it would be detected by, by an election official and Curtis replied they would never see it. And we had Deborah Bowen, former California Secretary of State, who did a full review on the um, Dominion, I think it was, electronic voting machines, 
and that have been certified by the state of California and found that every single one of the machines could be hacked within 60 seconds and have their results flipped without leaving any evidence behind. So election fixing isn't new. Um, there's a guy called Brad Friedman who made, who made a great point when interviewed with Chris Martison. He said, trust is different than verifiable. So trust, frankly, is no place in elections. There is no reason ever to trust anybody. We need to be able to verify all this. Those electronic voting machines are, in fact, 100% unverifiable, period. And he would, uh, yeah, go on to say that basically electronic voting is fraud. And what we had with the last American election was obviously, because he said, well, the main problem is election fraud, not voter fraud. What we saw in the last election, of course, was then a huge amount of both with all the mail-in ballots. But yeah, I would, I would argue that the US is now officially a banana republic. Uh, and I use a quote from the Nicaraguan director, uh, Somoza, uh, quoting The Guardian in 1977, who said, yes, indeed, you won the election, but I won the count. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so the question becomes, is it worth voting? And my view is, no, it isn't whatsoever. Um, I mean, if you want to show that you're more, in, you know, it, it, you're presented with a lesser of two evils, but the whole system's run off blackmail anyway, as we saw from the Epstein operation. It's the same in the UK, it's the same in the US. I mean, the latest one, I don't know if you heard him speak about it, but Andrew, Andrew Bridgen and what's happened over the last few years. And I can now use this quote because I know it's out in the public domain. But there's, there's two things he said. Uh, they, i.e. number 10, tried to bribe me. Uh, they said, what do you want? You can have anything you want if you keep shtum about all the vaccine injuries and deaths. He was effectively told by another MP, just like thalidomide, you'll be proven right in 20 years' time. But the worst one that got directed to him was uh, an MP came up to him and whispered in his ear, you can squeal all you want, Bridgen, but you'll be dead in two years. Wow. Yeah, exactly. So they all know what's going on and they're all keeping shtum, in my opinion. Now, why? Well, we've got some indication, for example, Jennifer Nakuri, who was Boris Johnson's former partner. She said, you can believe me now or find out later, that man Boris entered office blackmailed and compromised. But it gets much worse because we're dealing with, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know if you ever heard the Ronald Bernard quote. He was an inside... Uh, elite banker he said i was invited to participate in sacrifices abroad that was the breaking point children wow. so we've got an absolutely horrendous pernicious widespread problem uh it's as bad here as it is in the u.s and it's been going on for decades so yes you can vote but when the whole system is, um, you know, basically run on blackmail, as we've seen with the Epstein operation, uh, yeah, it's not going to, your vote's not going to count for anything, unfortunately. So until mm. this whole system has been cleaned out and cleaned up, 
um, I think you just legitimize it by uh, engaging with it. Yeah, I agree with you. I forget who said this, but something along the lines of if voting changed anything, it'd be illegal. Yeah, it's one of those quotes where it gets, I think, um, attributed to about 10 different people. Mm. I mean, this is one of the problems with, I found with the quotes is some of them, you're like, I mean, I spent two days on one quote trying to get to the bottom of it. It's like, you know, origination on some of this stuff. So I've tried where I've definitely known to use the name where there's some grey area. I say it's attributed to uh, or said something similar. And if it definitely wasn't them, I say so. But yeah, um, quotes from Minefield. Well, Fergus, it's been a it's been a brilliant discussion with you, um, and I'd love to have you back on at some point because your book, like I said, I'm probably only a quarter of the way through it anyway. Um, for those of you who don't know about Fergus's book, it is a large book, like I mentioned before, but it is it is readable. He's made it readable, and he's got some good chapter, not just simply chapter one, two, and three, but he's got like, he gives them good titles like countermeasures and revelations and, you know, so could you tell us, Fergus, I know, I know you don't have a website uh, or anything like that, but can you tell us where people could get hold of your book? Yeah, sure. So uh, if anyone wants the signed hard copy, they can contact me direct uh, via email. I'll give you that now. Uh, it's Fergus Greenwood at protonmail.com. Uh, Fergus is the Irish spelling, so I'll spell it out for you because it's got the silent A in. It's F-E-A-R-G-U-S, Greenwood, G-R-E-E-N-W-O-O-D at protonmail.com. Um, obviously, if you're not in the UK, uh, postage charges uh, will apply. And uh, it's not that cheap sending it across the pond. However, it is on Amazon. Uh, it's the paperback print on demand. I think Amazon's got it on discount at the moment for about $25. Um, but obviously, it's not quite the same quality as the hardback. So, uh, yeah, uh, take your choice on that one. But uh, basically, the cheap and the more expensive options are available depending uh, on your preference. And I would go on to say, just on the point you just made about being a, a relatively easy read, uh, I do cite the guy who came up to me in Lancaster and said to me, oh, I've already uh, bought and read your book. I said, thank you very much. He said, I've got a story for you. I said, go on. He said, uh, yeah, I've finished it. So I gave it to my friend's son, who teenage son who doesn't read books. I went, okay, how did that go? And he said, I passed it over. He took one look at it because it's quite thick and said, what the am I meant to do with that? And he just said, read the prologue and see how you go. And the teenage boy who doesn't read books finished 180 degrees in two weeks flat. Wow. I don't think I'll ever get a better compliment than that, really, from someone who doesn't read yeah. books. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'd definitely recommend it to people. Um, it's been a great discussion at Fergus. So, like I said before, I'd love to have you back on. Uh, if you just stay on for a minute after, uh, yeah, cool, we'll no go problem. Off there. Um, so, guys, thanks for joining me, all you regular listeners, and I'll be back next week with another guest. Uh, thank you again, Fergus. I'm Paul, and this is Beyond the Paradigm.
like crazy. We don't use that word in here. 